place where our hope resides is revealed in our moments of waiting. God is faithful to keep His promises. Behold, I am coming soon. About two years ago, I headed home during the workday to have lunch with my wife, Savannah, because at the last minute, I had a lunch cancellation. And so when I walked in the door for the very first time, my son, John Ryman, was there on the floor playing with his different toys. And, and after interacting with him and saying hey to him, I then went to the kitchen table to have lunch with my wife. Now, after sitting there at the table for several minutes, we all of a sudden realized that John Ryman was in the other room and had suspiciously been silent that entire time. That was red flag number one. And so I called for John Ryman to come into the kitchen, but it was as if he didn't hear me. That was red flag number two. And so I got up from the table, walked into the living room, and caught my son in the act of pouring out blue nail polish all over one of our couch cushions and my iPad. I mean, the color blue was everywhere. And so we immediately went into emergency mode. Savannah quarantined JR to the bathtub. I then took the couch cushion and, and tried to spray it off in the sink. I got out nail polish remover and fabric cleaner, and none of that was working. So I then took a Brillo pad and tried scrubbing it out. And so as a last resort option, I took the cover, the cushion cover off, threw it into the, into the wash machine, and nothing seemed to be working. And so two years later, here's what our cushion looks like. <laughs> now looking back, do you know what I learned that day? Next time someone cancels lunch with me, I should just stay at church. Now, obviously, I was not that successful in cleaning the stain out of the cushion. And so what we ended up doing was just flipping the cushion over. I mean, luckily, the stain was only on this side and had only been in this section of the, of the cushion. And so we just flipped it over. And so if you were to come to our house today and sit down on this red couch, you would never even know that it was there. I mean, it's completely hidden from plain sight. Now, the truth is, a lot of us have walked in here today with a, lot of, with a lot of stains from our past, right? I mean, we've all blown it big time on countless occasions, and we're not proud of some of the things that we've done in the past. The truth is, there's not one person in here who is perfect. And so when we become aware that we've spilled the nail polish on the red cushion, we typically respond in one of two ways. We try to clean it up ourselves. I mean, we're embarrassed by this mess that we've created, and, and so we, we feel as if we need to become a better person by, by cleaning up our life, because it's our responsibility, right? And so you try removing that stain by attending church occasionally. You try removing the stain in your life by maybe throwing in an extra 20 in the offering plate. You see, you're embarrassed by this mess that you've created, and so it's upon you to become a better person and, and clean up the mess that, that you've made. Now, the other way that we respond is, is we just flip the cushion over, right? I mean, it's much easier to just ignore that the stain is even there to begin with, and so we just, we don't even acknowledge it. 
Maybe someone recently confronted you about your angry outburst, but you were quick to point to maybe the stress that you've been going through at work, and, and that's what maybe made you respond in that way. Or your wife recently confronted you about why you've been texting with another woman so frequently, but you were quick to write it off by saying, well, we're just friends, it's no big deal. You see, when we have been found out, it's much easier to ignore that the stain is even there, right? And so what if God has a better solution for us? I mean, what if God has already been thanking this one through on our behalf? Now, if you're here with us today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know how glad we are that you're with us. Just a disclaimer up front, much of what we're going to talk about today will get weird at certain moments, all right? It will get a little bit strange, and when we get to those moments, your immediate response might be to tune me out and call me crazy, and and to that, you just might be right. But understand, I did take my medication this morning, okay? (laughs) But just promise me that when it gets a little bit odd in here, that that you will keep listening, that you're going to push through those moments. I realize that you're in really good company because the, the people that were original that, that the letter we've been looking at here at Crossroads for the past several weeks was written to some people who were skeptical of this whole Christianity thing. I mean, they had their fair share of doubts about God and Jesus, faith, and in the church. And, and so you're in good company today. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump to the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews is towards the back fourth of your Bible, right in between the book of Philemon and James. And if you don't own a Bible or don't have a Bible app on your phone, uh, know that there's a black one right in front of you. That is our gift to you. You can take that with you when you leave here today. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's on that table right as you walked in uh, the room a moment ago. Bibles should be back there. Now, we're going to pick up in chapter 10, starting in verse 1 today, but before we get there, we've got to navigate through some rather deep stuff, because it's important for us to understand that God originally created you and I to be in a peaceful relationship with Him. Now, this is tough for us to comprehend, but God does not have a birthday because He's always existed. And so, at the beginning of this world as we know it, he created humanity for his delight and glory. Now, the very first people to be on this earth, to walk on this earth, was a couple named Adam and Eve. They literally walked with God and experienced community with him in a perfect world. You see, it it was utterly flawless. In fact, the Hebrew word used to describe the life God originally designed for us is this word shalom, and it literally means absolute wholeness, full, harmonious, joyful, and flourishing life. But that shalom was lost rather quickly. You see, Genesis 3 actually tells us that Adam and Eve wanted more control, and so they decided to serve themselves rather than God. Now, that act of treason, the very first sin that entered the world, threw everything off balance, threw creation off balance. Now, people are so foundational to the fabric of God's creation that a choice made by us warped and tainted an entire planet. See, sin took us from shalom to depression and oppression and slavery and war and darkness and hunger and illness and ultimately death. 
Now, this is precisely why a guy named Paul would later write in a book called Romans that all of creation is in bondage to decay and will not be put right until people are made right with God. And so Adam and Eve's disobedience resulted in a big gap, a big, a big chasm between God and, and people. Now, because God is good and holy, he can't be connected to anything that is not good and holy or else he would no longer be good and holy. But realize what's even crazier than us wanting life, maybe apart from God, is that as soon as we filed for divorce with our creator, he immediately began a rescue mission to reconcile us back to him. You see, we all share this common DNA with our parents, and so we are born with this sin nature. Now, do you know one thing that I will never have to teach or train my kids? I will never have to show them how to be more selfish, right? (laughs) I mean, my daughter is two years old, and I've never sat her down at the table and taught her the words mine or now, all right? (laughs) And yet, from the beginning of life, we can see traces of this fallen nature, of this broken nature that we all have that has isolated us from a right relationship with God. And so before Jesus entered this world, the first step in God's plan to deal with our brokenness was to communicate every rule and law that had to be perfectly kept. There were about 613 total commandments on the list, and it would almost be impossible to go a single minute without breaking at least 10 of them. Now, knowing that it would be impossible to live up to those standards, God also established a system to give people a break when they did break those laws. Now, this system provided a way for for God to still have occasional marginal contact with the people that he loved and created. There was only one tiny minor problem with the system, though. It wasn't effective, (laughs) and people were still missing out on this whole shalom idea. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to dissect this a little bit more in our text today. And so if you're following along, pick up in verse 1 of chapter 10. Here's what the writer says. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. Now, notice it says that the old system was, was nothing but a shadow, a, a dim preview. Now, that word shadow right here means a mere silhouette. And so the writer is basically saying that that under this old system, under this first step of God reconciling us back to him, you still couldn't really get a true image of God, let alone know him personally. You see, in the old system, if you broke a command, you were required to make a sacrifice. Well, what did this look like? Well, let's keep going. Look at later on in verse one. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were, never to, they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they, could have, if they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, he writes, Those sacrifices actually reminded the people of their sins year after year. Now, what we read right here is a description of how this old system worked if you broke a command. 
Now, the writer is reminding his audience how the, how the most important holiday of the entire year in Judaism worked. Orthodox Jews called this sacred holiday the Day of Atonement, or you might hear it referred to as Yom Kippur. Now, that word atonement literally means at one men, and it's this idea of two severed parties, two isolated parties coming back together to be one. And so the point of this holiday was for an appointed high priest, which kind of served as like a pastor back in their day, to deal with the sin issue, the brokenness between God and people. And so how would this work? Now hang with me here. Here's where it's about to get pretty strange. Now on the day of atonement, two goats were selected that had to be utterly perfect. And these goats represented a sin offering to God in order to appease the wrath of God. Now, you might wonder, why does God possess wrath? It's a good question, but you know what? The answer might really surprise you. God is a God of wrath because he is first a God of love. You cannot have a God of love without having a God of wrath. Now, the more I love my wife, Savannah, the greater my capacity is for anger if someone were to harm or offend her in some way. Now, my wrath or anger towards that offender would not be in spite of my love for Savannah, but rather it would be because of my love for Savannah. And so in a similar fashion, the more God loves his people, the greater his capacity is for anger and wrath towards the sin and darkness and evil that destroys the people that he loves. And so on this day of atonement, the high priest slaughtered the first goat, which temporarily satisfied God's anger towards sin. The priest then drained and collected the blood of the goat and sprinkled it on what was called the mercy seat inside just a a tent where, where God's presence dwelled. Now the blood symbolized that a life had been given, all right, as a payment for sin. The goat, in other words, was a temporary substitute for God's people. Now time out here for a minute. Why blood? <laughs> right? I mean, that's just a little bit odd and, and even morbid, right? Believe it or not, blood is mentioned 362 times in the front half of the Bible, which is the Old Testament, and about 92 times in the back half of the Bible, which is the New Testament. You see, blood is the most common means by which Scripture refers to the death of Jesus. And so there are two quick things worth noting about blood here from our text. First one is this, that blood reminds us that sin leads to death. Blood reminds us that sin leads to death. Remember, sin is this act of walking away from God. And so if life with God is shalom, whole, flourishing life, then to reject him, to reject shalom, means to receive the opposite of that, which is death, right? Now, secondly, blood shows us that sin must be dealt with in a costly way. You see, sin is not a light matter. I mean, suppose I let you drive my car and and you wrecked it. You're either going to pay for it to have it fixed or, or I will forgive you and not make you bear any consequences. Now, if I choose to forgive you, I still have to bear a cost, right? Because I'm either going to function without a car for a time and, and, 
it be more chaotic and, and more frustrating for me, or I will pay money out of my pocket to have it repaired. But you see, either way, that car is costing me something. The, the, the wreck that you did to my car is costing me something. And you see, blood is this tangible reminder of the offense that sin is really costly and it has to be paid for. And so for the Jews, the sight of blood was an instant reminder of their sin and their need for a, for a better solution. But then you see there was this second goat on the Day of Atonement. The high priest who, who acted as a mediator between God and the people would then take the goat and lay his hands upon it while confessing the sins of the people. This goat is what was called a scapegoat. Because after the priest was done confessing all the sin, the goat was then released to run free in the wilderness away from the people, symbolizing that the people's sins had been removed. And so now that we understand how this old system worked a little bit more, let's reread our text and see just how ineffective the writer of Hebrews says that it was. Let's go back through. Here's verse 1. The sacrifices under that system on the Day of Atonement were repeated again and again. When? Year after year. But they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If, he writes, and that's a big if, they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, right? For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year, for it is not possible. Here's kind of the summary. It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so what we see happening here is a writer lovingly reminding his audience that Judaism, it's not freedom. That old system, it couldn't assure forgiveness. The law made it impossible to experience that shalom idea that God, made, that God had in mind at the creation of the world. But actually beneath the surface of this text, the author is saying something really shocking and scandalous. You see, it went beyond and against everything a good Jewish person learned growing up. Now in this text here, we realize that the main purpose of the Day of Atonement it was never really about forgiving sin. Rather, the systems, rather from the system's conception, the point of it was to fail, capture that, was to fail so that people would be desperate for something better and something greater beyond what any religion, tradition, or kind could do. Now, I've shared with you before that uh, about seven years ago, I was diagnosed with a type of lymphoma cancer, and, and by God's grace, since then, I have been healed and have been in remission after going through all necessary treatments. Now, in order to uh, make sure that my body stays in good health, my oncologist requires that I have a yearly checkup. Now, sometimes before I have a checkup with him, he requires that I have what's called a PET scan. Now, before the scan takes place, about an hour beforehand to be precise, a nurse comes and injects me with a clear radioactive solution called tracer. After the tracer has been absorbed into my body, I then lie down on a narrow table that goes into a large funnel-shaped imaging machine. 
The machine picks up the tracer solution that's been absorbed into my body and captures 3D images of my blood, my organs, and all of my lymph nodes. Now, my doctor then reviews all of those images and pictures to see if any cancer cells within me are replicating. Now, say my cancer did return. Now, what the tracer solution would not do would be, treat, would be to treat the cancer. The tracer solution would not heal me. No, the point of the tracer solution would simply be to reveal where the cancer would be growing. Why? So that my oncologist could then determine an appropriate treatment plan moving forward. And you see the law, the old system, Judaism, it kind of serves as a tracer solution for our hearts, revealing that we've all been diagnosed with a terminal illness. The law cannot cure us. The law cannot remove all of our stains on the cushion. It cannot save us. It cannot forgive us. In fact, a guy named Paul would later say it like this in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Capture this. The law, the old system, the day of atonement simply shows us how sinful we are. Now, let's be honest. We don't like to admit that we possess a need that we can't fix ourselves, right? I mean, there's a part of us that longs to maintain control in our sin solution, in our broken solution. That's why religion is attractive to so many people. The motivation of every religion is to fix what you broke, to cleanse the stain that you made. Follow these rules, obey this, don't go here, certainly don't drink that, and live a clean and moral life because maybe then, religion says, God will not be so disappointed in your stains. Now, even if you're not a Christian, Regardless, if you think the Bible is full of myths and mistakes and can't be trusted, deep down you intrinsically know that something is off about you. You ever felt lonely before? You ever been depressed? Have you ever felt this pressure to maybe measure up to someone beside you? Are you inclined to believe that your worth rides upon a promotion? You see, we all lack wholeness and experience a deep inner void because sin has cut us off from shalom, this, this life with God, this flourishing life that God intends for us to have. And you see, the truth is, we all try to fill that void with something. I mean, your void is acceptance. That's why right now you're in a relationship with a man that you don't even like. I mean, your void is respect. That, that's why you're working harder to... Maybe outperform your coworker so that you'll be noticed. Your void is security. That's why you bristle at the idea of faith because you know it may require that it, it, it's going to cost you something. It, it, there's going to be risk involved. Or maybe you, your void is worth. That's why you're relentlessly pursuing to fill your garage with more and more toys because maybe then people will notice and listen to you. And so could it be could it be that we are trying to fill our lives with things that ultimately won't satisfy? You see, we all long for shalom. Our problem is that along the way, we just settle for cheap imitations. Now, the biggest issue with these first century believers in the book of Hebrews is that they were desperate for comfort and control. Returning to Judaism was more comfortable because they could have dodged all the persecution following Jesus brought them. 
Judaism promised them more control because it's much easier to just obey a list of rules than it is to receive something that you did not deserve and something that you do not earn, and that's grace. And so let's pick up in verse 5 and continue along. Here's what we read. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. Now, right here, this is a quote from a book in the front half of the Bible in the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 40. Now, these verses from the Old Testament are what we would call a prophecy, okay? Now, a prophecy is simply a fancy Bible word that means a prediction or foretelling of something that is to come. And so the author is explaining here how everything in the Old Testament, everything under the old system from the law to all the commandments to the Day of Atonement and High Priest actually points us to the sufficiency and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came to achieve everything that we couldn't do. He came to do the very thing that that the old system couldn't do. That was to cleanse us, free us, make us whole, forgive our sin. You see, sovereign King Jesus came to give back the life of shalom that our first parents forfeited for all of us. You see, he did not come to just flip over the couch cushion. He came to give us a completely new one. Do you remember what happened on the Day of Atonement? One goat was innocently slaughtered and the, others, and the other one was released to freedom in the wilderness. The free goat escaped death, think about it like this, only because the other goat died in its place. You see, He paid something he never owed. Now, I'm not trying to go all animal rights and PETA on you here, but you know what? That goat did not deserve to die. I mean, he was perfect. He didn't didn't have a blemish. He was strong, and he still had lots of life left in him. And you see, Jesus is our greater goat. He is our greater sacrifice who became our our willing substitute. He died so that we could live. Jesus understood that that he could run free and we would die or he could die and we would run free. But here's the thing. Both can't run free. Both can't live. Why? Because God would be surrendering justice and trust me, you do not want a God who is in control of the universe who is not just. I mean, it's not like Jesus was unaware of what he was doing. It's not like he he didn't have options when he was arrested. Jesus could have withdrawn. I mean, he could have collaborated with the Pharisees. Even just moments before he took his last breath, thousands of angels stood on the edge of heaven ready to rescue him. All he had to do was say the word. But you see, Jesus did none of that. Instead, that day he, he died for the ones who beat and mocked him. He died for the ones that demanded that he be crucified. He died for the ones who didn't understand him. He even died for the very ones who nailed his wrist and nailed his feet. And you see, as a result, we're the ones who get to run free. We're the ones who who have a second chance at life. 
Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, your sin has caused the trajectory of your life to be headed towards eternal death and separation. That's what we all deserve. But you see, at just the right time, Christ shoved us out of the way and absorbed wrath in our place so that we could have life. You see, Jesus did not come to make good people better. (laughs) Jesus came to give dead people life. And so what are the implications for us right now? Well, the author actually picks this apart. Skip down to verse 10. He says, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Notice this verse doesn't say that we're made holy by our obedience. We're not made holy by becoming more generous. We're not made holy by becoming a a kinder person or, or having a flawless interpretation of Scripture. Now, despite what you've been told before, when it comes to our personal holiness, we bring nothing to the table. Why is that? Well, look again. It's past tense. We've been made holy once for all time. This means that when you place your faith in Jesus, a literal supernatural exchange takes place between you and God. Jesus takes all of your brokenness, all of your sin and darkness, and in return puts his righteousness, his holiness upon you. You see, God still requires for us to keep the law perfectly. Did you know that? But you know what? In Christ, it's been accomplished for us. And so if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you are holy. You are righteous. It is a byproduct of our identity. But let's be straight. We don't always act like it, right? (laughs) I mean, we do not always live holy lives. We still sin. We still mess up. You probably won't even make it to the parking lot here in just a few minutes, right? (laughs) And if you do, good luck when sitting in traffic or someone takes your parking spot. (laughs) And so for those in Christ, it's kind of a weird relationship that we now have with sin. But let me just help clarify it by saying it like this. Our relationship with sin goes like this. Sin is the disconnect between our identity and our behavior. Sin is the disconnect between our identity and our behavior. Because Jesus purchased us with his blood, our identity now rests securely in him. This means that you are more than your worst moment. That what you hold against yourself, God doesn't even see it. I mean, the thought that God is disappointed in you is merely an illusion and a lie. Another way to think about our identity shift is written about By Paul in the book of Galatians, he tells us that you and I were once slaves, but now we're heirs because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Christ paid for our adoption. So that means we are no longer slaves to sin, but we're actually heirs of righteousness. And so let me ask you something. If you go from being a slave to an heir, don't you think that your life choices will eventually change? You see, sin is not a behavior issue. Sin is an identity issue. When we think that we are less than we are, our choices end up reflecting that. Now, we're almost done here. And if there's one thing that's gonna keep us from living like heirs and children of God, it's hiding. 
We become enslaved to the stuff that we try to cover up. Why is that? Well, we all tend to hide things in our life that we think has the power to determine our identity and our worth. That's why if your deepest, darkest secret were ever to be exposed, your immediate fear would be, what will people think? Perhaps you spilled nail polish on the couch cushion and for far too long you've just flipped it over hoping that no one will notice But let me ask you, if you really believed, if you really believed that those stains didn't define you, wouldn't you at least be free to admit to them? And being transparent with one another helps us live like an heir and not like a slave. And so I've got a little homework for you. If you want to live like an heir and, and not like a slave, then, then I want you to participate in this. And so go ahead and pull out your bulletin. And if you didn't receive a bulletin, then maybe pull out your cell phone and, and open up your notes application. But I want you to write some stuff down here. Now look, I really believe with all my heart that if you do what I'm about to challenge you to do, that it could lead to a lot of freedom and relief for you. It's only going to help you in the long run. I mean, you just might get a little bit closer to living out this whole shalom idea. And so here, here's the first question for you. And what I want you to do is I just want you privately to yourself to write down the answer to this question. You don't need to write the question down, but maybe just write your response. First question is this. What have you been hiding that you need to uncover? What have you been hiding that you need to uncover? Now think about it for a moment and again, write it down or type it out. This is that thing that maybe you did that you hope no one finds out about. Perhaps it's it's a pattern of thinking or motive that you can't believe even crosses your mind. That may not be some deep, dark secret that you have, but perhaps it's just something that you've grown accustomed to over the course of time. My second question for you is this. Who do you trust that is full of both truth and grace? Who do you trust that is full of both truth and grace. So we're looking for a name here. It can be a family member. It can be a friend, someone in your small group. It can't be that person, though, who's all truth and little grace. And it can't be that person who's all grace and little truth. Who has your best interest in mind and will be both loving and honest with you? And so here's the real challenge. What would it look like for you to have a conversation with that person about what your answer to number one is? I mean, if you're in Christ, you are holy and free. You're an heir. You just may need a little help living that out on a day-to-day basis. And so my third question is this. When will you uncover what you've been hiding? When will you uncover what you've been hiding? Now, if you're willing to do this, for this answer, put down a specific time within the next three days because you know what? If it's not soon, you're gonna forget or you'll no longer see the urgency behind it. Again, nobody's forcing you to do this, but if you opt out, don't you think that it's gonna require you doing some things differently to get rid of the shame and guilt and fear that you've been carrying around? My question for you is, Is your way, is your method really working? And so see these questions as an invitation to release the weight that Jesus has already carried on your behalf. This past Monday, I actually went through these questions myself. When first going through it, I thought, you know what, I've got nothing to hide. (laughs) 
clean, I'm good, I get a pass on this. But I was wrong. I've been flipping the cushion over so much that honestly I'd just gotten immune to some things. And so today at about four o'clock, I have a phone conversation with a trusted mentor and friend and you know what? (laughs) I'm not really looking forward to it. But I know that that conversation is going to help me live like an heir and, and not so much like a slave. And so what we're going to do right now as a church is, is we're going to take communion. And, and the reason why we wanted to take communion at the end of service today is because at communion, we're reminded that we no longer need to sacrifice goats in order to obtain forgiveness because Jesus' blood is, is sufficient. We no longer need to go through a high priest because Jesus' blood is sufficient. We no longer have to go to a temple to be near God. Rather, because of Jesus' blood, God's presence dwells within each and every follower of Jesus. And so in the next few moments, the trades are going to be passed. And if you're in Christ with us today, just take that little piece of bread. What it represents is Jesus' body that was broken. Take that cup of juice, and and obviously that represents his blood that was shed on your behalf. And you sit there and you be reminded that you are free, that you are whole, that that you have access to shalom, all because of what Christ has done for you. And then after several minutes, the band is going to sing a song called Man of Sorrows. And, And I wanted them to sing this song because it really captures the idea of what being free is all about. One of my favorite lines goes like this, now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. And the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the Son sets free, is free indeed. And so it's time to live free. It's time for us to live like we are out of debt. Let's pray. Father, I know that a lot of us in here have so many stains that we can't even see straight. We've been trying to be a good person to kind of outbalance the scales. And some of us, we've just been ignoring it altogether because that's the easier, that's the easier option. But God, none of that's freedom. None of that leads to the life that, that you would have us to live. And, and truthfully, it, it would totally negate, Jesus, what you did for us on the cross because at the cross, you declared it's finished. It's finished, but, but some of us, we're just having a hard time living that out. And, and so God, would you help us? Would you remind us day in and day out that we're free, that we're forgiven? And Jesus, we, we just thank you as your people, as your church gathering here this morning. Thank you for what you've done for us. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.